Number 13, Psalms, First Quarter, 2024. Daniel Duda. We're happy to have all of you who are here, our Pine Knoll family. Before we begin our Lesson 13, which is the end of the book of Psalms, and it's Wait on the Lord, Michael is going to offer our introductory prayer. Thank you, Michael. Our dear Heavenly Father, creator of all things, thank you, thank you, thank you. You gave to us your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, our Savior, and the Savior of all mankind. And we pray for your continued guidance in our lives and our hope for eternal salvation. We ask these things in your name, your beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. So the last lesson in the quarter on the book of Psalms, and if you look under number one, the lesson says, if there is a final word that we can draw from the Psalms, it should be wait on the Lord. There are 150 Psalms, you have 13 Sabbaths, so you should cover 12 of them each Sabbath if you wanted to cover all of them, which of course it's impossible. So this time we are going to do four Psalms. And that's why you have to skip some and you have to choose both the topics and the psalms that you cover. And so the author of this quarterly chose Waiting on the Lord as the final message from the psalms. So we are on a journey. We live in the hope of the second coming. Our longing then will be ultimately fulfilled. But until then, we need to wait. And so every time we preach what happened on the cross, that's the past, when we experience the sacraments, that the presence of God in our lives, we are also proclaiming that there is a future which is not here yet. So the lesson for Sunday, which is Psalm 27, 37, 34, 39, 40, 69, it's a call to wait. So why so many Bible texts implore God's people to wait? Maybe, Karen, I have seen you presenting the video of the marshmallow test. If you could summarize what is a marshmallow test, that the children psychologists use. Okay, so marshmallow test, you take a child into a room and you say, here's a marshmallow on the table. And if you can wait until I come back, then I'll give you two. If you eat it in the meantime, that's all the marshmallow you'll get. And then you see the children desperately trying to wait and not knowing quite how long it's going to be and doing all sorts of things to entertain themselves in the meantime. And then if they're successful and they don't eat it well, the teacher's away or the, the psychologist, then she will come back or he will come back and give the child another one. And the children that can wait um, evidently and can delay their gratification are those who are more likely to do better in life and because they can wait for the things that are important to make good choices. But they did the test again and they realized that if the child trusts the person who says, if you can hold on and wait, I'll give you another one, then they're more likely to wait. So it's also about the relationship with the person who tells them to wait. So that's important. And as God tells us to wait, I guess there's a lesson there for us. So we know that children are not good at that. So it's both their perception of time and the immediate satisfaction So versus delayed satisfaction takes a certain level of maturity. That Another test was, I give you $1 now or you can have $100 later. And because of their perception of time and the value, waiting is something that children are not good at. And of course, the assumption is that the older you become or the more mature you are, the better you are at waiting. So probably my first question would be, how good are you at waiting? Do you like waiting? Now, of course, there is some waiting which is inevitable in life. So you are in a waiting room for the doctor's office. You wait for an hour. So are you going to, which one would you prefer? A, grateful for the chance of catching up on 1995 Reader's Digest. Do you tell others that you have some very highly contagious disease so that you can cut the waiting in line or the queue and so you get a little bit more dramatic so that you get what you want or you start hyperventilating so that you get immediate attention now of course there are serious and difficult kinds of waiting and many people wait for the marriage that never comes childless couples desperately want to start family but uh, often that doesn't happen 10 percent of marriages are without children there's waiting for the spouse to change Elisa, tell us. 
this past week, Wednesday. Danny had a doctor's appointment and it happened to be an eye appointment. And he thought maybe he might need a ride after the doctor's appointment. So I went to go pick him up. The appointment was at 11. And at 12 o'clock, I was still sitting in the parking lot at Loma Linda, wondering what was happening. When shortly after 12 o'clock, someone rang and I could see it was a Loma Linda number, uh, a hospital number. So I picked it up and it was the nurse. And she said, oh, your husband wanted me to let you know that he still hasn't seen the doctor yet and that maybe you should come in and wait with him. Well, I was a little chagrined, to tell you the truth. Not that he hadn't called me before, but that the doctor had kept him waiting for an hour. And actually, it turns out it was more like an hour and a half. And I won't say where that was, but one of the things that I found is God talks a lot about patience, aside from us waiting on the Lord. It seems to me that's one of the key qualities that he wants to cultivate in us. If we take 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. That's the first quality. I'm just saying it was the first thing mentioned. And for me, it seems like a lot of us could improve that. So I think waiting helps us do that, helps us be patient. Yes, thank you. Michael? As a lawyer, I did a lot of waiting. And I think Bob can appreciate what I'm saying is that in trials of lawsuits, the anxiety that is filled and waiting to actually get started. Once the trial itself starts, I always seem to relax and focus on what was going on. But it's that anxiety beforehand. Now, what about this? What about that? I hope this is going to work out and so forth. And the other thing I was going to mention, I was representing a physician in a medical malpractice case, which I commonly did. That was the nature of my practice. And I had an appointment with the doctor in my office, and I got delayed in court. And I came back to the office, sat down, and I apologized for my delay. And he was really upset. He said, I don't appreciate you. I said, sir, I couldn't help it. He said, well, I don't care. My time is very valuable and so forth. I reached my hand across the desk and I said, let me shake your hand. He said, what for? I said, I finally met a physician who never kept the patient waiting. He smiled and laughed and it calmed him down. Yes. So it's part of living this side of eternity that we have to wait. The question is, why is that an important part of our spiritual formation and what are we supposed to learn from that? And Elisa already started us in that direction. If you look under number three, there is a quote from a famous American theologian of the Dutch origin, Louis Smeets, who said, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like not ever. And uh, yeah, I liked it, so I put the quote there. So what would you say? Why so many Bible texts implore God's people to wait? Why is it important? And as you can see from the quote, what is the first and obvious lesson that we need to learn? Bob? Well, it seems like there are a number of times in the Bible that we studied in this class where impatience got people into trouble quite a few times. Yes. And without going through a bunch of them, I think we've all talked about them. So maybe God's timing is different than our timing. And it's not that God's trying to make us sit around, but there are things we could be doing with our time that would help the cause. But it just seems like sometimes, obviously God created us, so he knew he would have that built-in impatience. So I guess he's trying to help counteract that, even though because Solomon, I think, was the one to go to ant that sluggard and be energetic, that type of thing. So sometimes we're supposed to be energetic, but it seems like there's this cross current of being energetic, but also being patient. So I don't have it totally figured out in my own life. I can relate to what Michael said. We've been waiting on a trial to go out for a year, and I guess we're supposed to start Monday a week from now, but it keeps being put off because the courts are jammed. So, But you sort of live with it, and I think everybody in this group probably has that happen in their own profession. So I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you. So the fact that God has a different perspective, God's timing is not our timing. And there is this famous joke, I think we mentioned it when we had the quarter on stewardship, that a man was reading Second Peter 3, 8 to 9, to be ignorant of the fact that with the Lord one day is like a 
thousand years and thousand years is like one day and so the man said lord is it true that thousand years for you is just like one minute for us and god says yes and the economist said lord that means that a million dollars to you must be like one penny to us and god said yes well that's correct and then the economist said well lord could you give me one of those pennies the lord said sure i gladly will just wait one minute and so you know that we want pennies but we want the minutes we want one thing but we don't want god's scheduling and his timing is different than ours so that's certainly one things that we need to learn in life livius can we maybe get some help from second peter 3 9 the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient with you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance so there's an other-centered directive, I guess, attribute to patience, and it's looking to save as many people as possible. Yes, so that's an important aspect, uh, Iris. So yes, that's the question. Is there a purpose in this waiting? What does it say about God? Is he just trying to build our faith and uh, impose this on us, like with suffering? Is God doing this to us? Or is this, from a great controversy perspective, showing a great deal of restraint of God to allow the whole great controversy to play out in all of its facets to then intervene at just the right time when he can really maximize the number of those being saved? I mean, we have to take into consideration that there is an enemy here that is trying to thwart God's plans all the time. And yet there is a revelation taking place of who he is. So to me, it is really important to see God as not inflicting this waiting on us needlessly, but for a greater, very, very important trajectory to be accomplished for his perfect plan to play out and that gives me hope in those moments where i don't understand the delays where i don't even understand the twists and turns of life seemingly sometimes going in the opposite direction in what i feel like is the wrong direction but i know who it is that i'm waiting for it is the lord who is faithful the lord who is good the Lord who has overcome, and that gives meaning to the waiting. Thank you. Yes, so back to the marshmallow test. It has to do, as Karen mentioned, with the relationship, with the trust. It has to do with understanding the values. You know, there is a time when a child might say, a bird in the hand, you know, one marshmallow that I have now is better than two later, and I'm not so sure. So let me just have what I want to have. And the problem is that we don't know the purpose. As Viktor Frankl proved, people can put up with almost anything if they have a sense of purpose. And you remember those experiments where people were just asked to shovel a pile of dirt from one heap to another. And once they finished, they were asked to shovel it back. And sooner or later, they went crazy because they didn't see any purpose to what they are doing. And if the Lord doesn't do the explaining, and with certain things we don't know the purpose, then it might seem as senseless, and then we lose our patience. But one of the things to learn here is that we like doing, earning, buying, selling, building, planting, driving, baking cooking. So we are the ones who make things happen, while waiting is a matter of being rather than doing. Stopping, sitting, listening, looking, breathing, wondering, praying. And when you are in the sense of being, you wait for someone or something to happen, which is not there yet, as Smeed mentioned, that will, might, or might not arrive. You can't influence the timing. We like to tick things off. And so waiting is teaching us that we are not in charge. Now, have you ever realized that God has to wait as well? Don't you think that he would like to finish and sort out the great controversy problem quickly? He has all the power. He has the truth. 
He could cut it short easily anytime. He has to wait. So we are not the only ones who wait. But that's the first thing, the first lesson that we should learn from waiting. We are not in control. The universe, the world is bigger than me. And my needs, my preferences. And I need it and I need it now. Yes. Rita. A couple of things came to mind. And I think waiting is about learning that now might not be the time for the right answer. You want the right answer at the right time for the right reason, um, not an answer now. And I used to find this at work, and a pathologist that I worked alongside also, we would get hassled. Have you done the report on that? Have you looked at that specimen? Have you looked at that x-ray? What's your report? And his response, and I thought was a wonderful response, was, do you want an answer now or do you want the right answer? Because the answer I give you now might not get you anywhere and it might actually take you down the wrong path. If you aim for the right answer, you'll go down the right route. Mm. And the other thing that came to my mind was, I wonder if God is trying to, or it's his way of preparing us for the millennium, because we will have a lot of questions, but it's going to take a very long time, a length of time that none of us alive now and for most people who have ever lived on this planet, can't imagine living for a thousand years. Um, so our lives now are just but a, a drop in relation to that. And if we can learn to wait 70 years, then it'll be a lot easier for us to learn to wait a thousand years to have all the answers that we're looking for and have them for the right reason and understand them. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. And certain answers don't come quickly. Abba used to sing, words don't come easy to me, but answers don't come easy to us. And certain answers require perspective, require maturity, and require a lot of time. And that's a very important reason, as Iris said, that God is not imposing this waiting on us arbitrarily. Let me show them. Let me teach them a lesson. So it's interesting to see how people react when they are waiting for the elevator, you know, the lift, how they press the button. And if the elevator had a sense of consciousness, would say, oh, I need to go to that third floor because the guy is getting impatient. <laughs> no. Michael. I think of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, can't you spend one hour? Can't you just wait one hour with me, stay awake? And he's going through terrible anxiety. He's terrified. The scriptures clearly reflect that. And then, of course, after he's arrested, he seems to be calm after that period of time. But that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was at the bottom of despair. And it makes me think that oftentimes, and I speak in my own life, that I don't understand some of the problems and difficulty with which people are going through. And I've had more than one occasion in dealing with a client when you say, no, it's going to be this way. It is. Oh, yeah, it's already worked out. It's already been done. Whether we settle the case or whether it was like a summary judgment, I won't try to explain what that means, was granted in his favor, and the case is over with. And you see this just ah, immediate relief on there. And you mentioned the people waiting for the elevator. You don't know what's going through the minds of those people there. Some of them might be very, very anxious, very terrified over the circumstances in their lives. Yes. All right. You mentioned different places of the Bible from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter, etc. Different places. Of course, it, this is a quarter on Psalms. So we have quoted Psalm 27. Let's go to Psalm 131. It's again one of those shorter Psalms that has only three verses. Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. All right, so it's an invitation. It's, as we mentioned in the previous lesson, is one of those songs of ascent that end with 134. 
This one is attributed to David, and it's an invitation for Israel to hope in the Lord. Now, David had an experience with waiting, and not only that, it made his life miserable, spoiled his family life with the persecution from Saul, and he realized that being the king, being anointed as a king, is not a recipe for celebrity status, but it's a source of suffering. And the new idea of the suffering servant is born. So in Asian world where being a monarch, being a king is the position of privilege and they call the shots, they decide the things. Being anointed as a king for David means trouble. And for a number of years, he cannot assume the position of the king because of Saul, who was the previous king. So what do you do of this metaphor? I am waiting like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is within me. What's your understanding? What's going on here? Yes, Nancy? I really never thought of this before, but a weaned child doesn't need to nurse anymore. And a child who is nursing, when they're hungry, oh my, they are hungry right now. They have absolutely no patience. They'll scream their head off some. And so a weaned child, hopefully, is maybe one who could say, Mom, I'm hungry, or they have more patience. And a child who's nursing has none. Yes, so this is the proof of the original sin, that a newborn infant is the most self-centered being in the universe, because everything oscillates and rotates around them. And so when they are hungry, you can't explain the mom went to the toilet, to the bathroom, so you will get the food in 30 seconds. No, you want it now? <laughs> no understanding, you know. It's interesting that by bombarding the child with love, the child learns to overcome the self-centeredness and become hopefully unselfish and mindful of the needs of mother. And that once the needs of the child are satisfied and will be satisfied, you know how damaged are the children who have been hurt early in life by unreliable parent. The fear of abandonment, what it does to human soul and human beings. But by providing the food on time and the weaned child, and especially if you take the biblical timing, you know, it takes three years, that hopefully there's a lesson in patience learned there and taking into consideration others and when another sibling arrives you need to learn to share mom toys everything with others and it's a part of shaping human beings and applying that to spirituality that god is shaping us in this way anything else you wanted to say david put in the chat that anticipation is often or usually worse than knowing and many people expect yeah that's for us if you don't know that what makes it worse the waiting so we would rather have the bad news now than delay and waiting and anticipation for a period of time michael yeah waiting of the baby reminds me that it's that anxiety of letting go and we all have that from time to time whatever it might be Letting go of something. We don't want to let go of it because it's our security blanket. And it, often the anxiety is worse than the letting go. Yes. If you look under number five, what makes things more difficult is that in our society, there is a direct correlation between status and waiting. So the higher your status, the less you have to wait. But waiting reminds us that we are created beings. We are not in charge on certain things. As Louis Smith said so well, we wait for a happy ending that we cannot write or in darkness for the flame that we cannot lead. So there are certain things beyond our control. And notice that God, who has all the power, all the truth, he voluntarily submits, subjects himself to this waiting so that he cannot use certain things to his advantage. Certain things need to work out and be seen by the whole universe because if he used the power, if he used the knowledge, etc., ultimately it would work against him. It would bring a misunderstanding. So that's an important thing. All right, let's go to Psalm 26, 126, 126. Two lessons ago, we mentioned this because it's one of the songs of ascent. 
but we said that there is every evidence that this was written during the Babylonian exile at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah because of the restoration. But what this lesson concentrates on are the verses 5 to 6. But let's read the whole psalm to get the context. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. And you can understand that the lesson concentrates mostly on verse 5 and 6. So those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. There is weeping in the evening, or the morning comes with shouts of joy and carrying the sheaves. So it uses the metaphor of sowing and harvest. However, if you look at the first part of the psalm, it gives you some historical perspective. So 605 before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the cream of the society with him to Babylon. That's where Daniel goes. And the rest continue living in Jerusalem, but there is a cloud over them. And Jeremiah is reminding them that this is not going to end up well. That no amount of quoting psalms, that Zion is invincible, she is not going to fall, is going to save them. And the fact that the temple of the Lord is in their midst is not going to protect them when Nebuchadnezzar comes back. And then he does, and 586, the temple and the city is destroyed. One third of people die in the fighting, and one third are taken to Babylonian captivity. And they are there 70 years of waiting. Then there is a Babylon is fallen message, which is a gospel. You can go home, you can go back, but still it takes time for them to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And finally, under Ezra and Nehemiah, when the temple is rebuilt, it took some years of waiting. Now, of course, the psalm says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it seemed to us like a dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. But it certainly wasn't laughter and joy, meanwhile, until then. So we liked when this is what God did. And they said among the nations, the Lord had done great things for them, and the Lord had done great things for us, and we rejoiced. But that rejoicing comes after the period of confusion, period of waiting, period of crying. And then is the prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord. We all want that. We want to see your blessing. But for that, you need to wait. And here's the message. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy and carrying the sheaves. What's the lesson? How is waiting important? Karen? So if we're sowing and things grow, then there's change taking place, even if we can't see it under the ground and then the growth of the plants to the harvest. And when we're waiting, we can change our perspective on what's happening. We can reflect on things. We can grow and mature. We can use that time to be a blessing in other ways. And so it's a time for, for changing. It's not just a still time. It's a time for growth and change and maturity. Very good. So you have those songs of ascent about Zion and how unmovable and invincible she is. And then you have to live with the reality that imperial powers destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and it takes long. People are carried away into captivity. And you are wondering, are we going to be restored? Can we go home back again? Are we going to have our own capital once more? And once it starts happening, it seems like a dream. Yes, we are awake. This is really happening. But then comes the prayer for further restoration. Yes, we have the temple. Israel is still our capital, but there is further work, future work to be done. The Messiah has not come to the temple yet. The Lord is not in his temple. And it will take 400 more years before the Messiah appears. No word from the Lord, just waiting. And here is the verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying the sheaves. And this, together with prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah, 
becomes the basis of one of the greatest parables of Jesus, and it's a picture of hope. As a farmer, you have to scatter the seed, so the seed dies. You can't use it, but you scatter in hope. You bury the seed underground in hope, to use the words of Jesus, that it will produce the harvest of 30, 60, or 100. So a loss here, waiting here, brings much more in the future. The temptation to eat, consume, and use the seed that you have is short-sighted because it's not going to produce the harvest. Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric, he said, the greatest temptation, the most difficult thing when you have the product which is the best in the world is to put 100% of your capacity into the production of the product which is the best in the world. If you do that, you destroy your company because in due time, your product will not be the best in the world. But he says, you need to cut down on your production of things that only you produce is the best in the world. You could sell it for good price with profit, cut down on the production and put the money, put the energy into research and development so that in due time, you have the best product in the world that you can keep selling. And that's the same principle. Done. I'm impressed by the fact that all of this patient stuff has a direct relationship to relationships. I think in order to have meaningful relationship, one has to develop patience. And I'm sort of reminded of this at my work where I get a chance to work with residents. If you grade a resident by the quality of who he is and his work in the first year and compare it to what they're like in their last or their fourth year in radiology, it's frequently very different. And so I think there's a real application of that to our own personal. If we're too quick to judge someone or to discard a relationship immediately because we think it's not fruitful, I think we'll miss out on a lot of good relationship. And this is certainly true in a family where I don't think parents can really judge what their relationship to their children are going to be, at least for a decade and a half or two, maybe. And I'm sure that Sometimes parents must wonder whether they're going to have a meaningful relationship, but all of a sudden their child matures and suddenly they develop the kind of relationship they had always hoped for. And I think this is the wonderful part about God, that God is willing to let us evolve and develop, realizing that for some of us, we will become mature within a few decades. And for some people, it's just until before they pass away. But God doesn't seem to care they're going to both be welcomed into his kingdom. It's not so much a matter of him looking for a product as much as him looking for a relationship, I think. And what God develops during this process is more important than anything else. The most important thing is what happens within us while we wait. And to bring back to what Rita mentioned, and for some, it's only going to happen during the millennium. Rita? It suddenly struck me that these two verses that say those who sow in tears or he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow. These are people who are, if you like, in the depths of despair, but yet they are still prepared to go out with seed because they know if they plant it, there will be something at the end of it. So it's not about giving up. It is about looking forward even in your despair. And it's an optimistic outlook. No, you could say, there's no point, the enemy will come, he will steal and destroy and everything. There's no point of sowing. I'm not going to do anything. So notice that the work of sowing is connected with pain and struggle, with weeping. Sowing the kingdom cost Jesus his life. But it also implies that you and I can do something for God. Your sowing is something that God is going to use to produce multiple harvest. And uh, many of you have mentioned uh, coming to a different place and different church, people recognized your voice and valued your contribution to Pi Null because something you said in a small context was a blessing to someone across the globe somewhere else. But this aspect that sowing, going out, means weeping, it's something that shows the nature of reality this side of the Garden of Eden, that is full of frustration. We often want religion to be the magic solution to our problems, so that I have an easy, comfortable, prosperous, successful life. And this reminder that sowing with tears, with pain, with frustration, 
is the nature of reality. It's very important perspective and corrective of that distorted image. Julie. When we talk about learning patients, we tend to be talking about things that are occurring in our lifetime. We have an experience, we have to wait, and then it looks like God came through. So we have that to build on to have a little more faith in patients next time. But when we're dealing with things such as the people of Israel were, where it takes more than our lifetime to reach what we are looking for, this requires something, I think, very different than our individual experiences are having to put up with sitting in traffic for a long time and things like that, because we're not getting that immediate feedback. We're not even getting a long-term feedback. We have to base, I think, our hope and our moving forward in faith and patience on other people's stories and on epic stories like we find in the Bible, where we have to see a continuity of what was going on throughout the history of this group of people later on throughout the Christian church. And without those epic stories, we don't There's a fine line between waiting and hope and waiting and foolishness. And we have to have something to base that waiting on. Thank you. Thank you. Well said. All right, let's go to Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The dullard cannot know, the stupid cannot understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For your enemies, O Lord, For your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. In old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap, showing that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. All right, so the heading for this is a song for the Sabbath day. How does the fact that you know that this is a psalm for the Sabbath change the perspective of what Terry just read for us? Michael? Is it because the Sabbath is an opportunity to praise God and give thanks to God for all the blessings he has given unto us? Sure. So the seventh day is the capping stone, and it's an opportunity to stop and to summarize and see that God has blessed you during the week. Now, you might not see that from the perspective of the day, and of course, certain things you can't see from the perspective of a week, so you will need a longer period of time But it shows you that you need these periods of reflection in your life to realize the blessings. Yes, Julie? So I read the whole psalm. It looks to me like most of this psalm is about the works of God, not my works. It's what he does in his people. It's all the things that he has done, not necessarily what we do. So that kind of reminds me of the Sabbath. Okay. So you concentrate on what God is doing, not what we have accomplished. And we said this is part of the problem with waiting that we are concentrating on our doing while waiting is about being. It's not what you tick off, done, accomplished, let's move on. It's about seeing what God does. Rita? I'm beginning to see here in verses 9 to 11 a perspective on the Exodus and what they've come to realize that what God did for them. Yes, yes, definitely. So it's the salvation that he provides, and the Torah is the tool of transformation. When you see this, then his instruction becomes for you the source of flourishing, source of growing, being planted, not to be unstable by the winds, flourishing, producing fruit. So there is some spiritual transformation that takes place. And that's the result of waiting. 
that yes, you don't have this, you don't have that, you see all the things that you don't have, but the perspective on the Sabbath day helps you to see things you have, and there is something taking place. And there is time coming when you will be glad because you will flourish, you will produce your fruit. One of the things in coaching, in helping younger generation, whether it's pastors, ministers, or different employees, I mean, Dan Kido mentioned that, is to tell them, relax, relax. Five years from now, you will see differently. Don't do now something foolish, stupid, that is going to endanger your path. Provide that perspective of time, maturity. And of course, in Psalms, you can see how Torah for the Old Testament people does that, that you are not driven by the immediate success. Remember Proverbs about easy money, easy sex, and showing that this is going to have detrimental consequences. Learning to wait shapes something positive in you. Sherry? One thing interesting about waiting for me has been that sometimes we just don't have enough information and something that we may desperately want to happen may be the worst thing for us if we only knew what was coming or what was in other people's thinking or what just in general information. God knows all of that. And if we're patient in waiting, sometimes it's quite surprising to find that some of the greatest tragedies that hit us As we look back on it, we realize that maybe it was one of God's best gifts because it has helped us or opened our eyes to things that we never would have seen otherwise. And we can see in the whole span of things that it was the right decision that God made and that it was best for us. And we grow and learn from that. And I think then that gives us courage to wait in the future, knowing that there is so little that we actually can see. And God sees it all, and we can trust him. And even if it seems very much a tragedy, it may be that it was wisdom for us to experience, and it may be that God turned it into something that would be healthy and good for us, even if it was bad at the time. So I think it encourages us in our waiting in the future, the experiences that we've had and then look back on. Yes, yes. So well said, Sherry. Thank you. So just as the Sabbath gives you a perspective of a week that you can't judge certain things on Monday or Wednesday, you need a longer perspective. Imagine that having a perspective of a year or decade here helps you to process and see things from a different angle. Imagine having a perspective of 1,000 years how you can process those things that's puzzling, frustrating, and incomprehensible to you in your life, and you saw no purpose in waiting. And back to the marshmallow test and what Karen mentioned at the beginning, if you have the relationship of trust, this is an important aspect of the waiting, that you realize you are in good hands. And Iris mentioned this also, that you know the famous saying when, The mother who is punishing her son says, I want you to know that it hurts me more than it hurts you. And he says, yes, mom, but it hurts you elsewhere than it does hurt me. That God doesn't do to you this waiting. Let me teach him a lesson. Let me do this to him. But waiting helps you to realize the ultimate reality is good. You are in good hands. Because if you only observe the nature of reality as it is, you would not know without revelation that the ultimate reality is on your side. And this is going to be very strong in the Psalms. You know, I was observing the wicked and they triumph. And the people who have no rules and do not follow any principles, they are doing better in life. And here is the Israelite nation who can see that pagans are ruling over them. They are prosperous. And they are crying and praying, Lord, send your king, send your Messiah, get rid of these Romans, get rid of these people. And then Jesus comes and subverts Psalm 73 with the Sermon on the Mount, saying, actually, those who are crying are already comforted. Those who are poor are already blessed. And the subversion is not that a son of David will come with a stronger army, a better sword more violence, and achieve the goal. 
actually God is going to change the story in a different way. And that's why the waiting gives you this perspective. And as Sherry mentioned, plus the added thing that the things that cannot be explained and understood or processed within the 70 plus years of lifetime, in the great controversy model, you have the 1,000 years, you have the whole eternity, because if God doesn't win the mind, he doesn't win the war. So this processing is very important to see that God didn't play a game with you, that this waiting had its purpose. And back to Rick Frankel, that if we can see the purpose, we can cope with anything. Michael? Listening to Sherry made me think of a story I read some years ago, but it was a true story about a guy who was sentenced to prison for like 25 years, whatever length of period of time it was. And he said, as a result of going to prison, I started reflecting. I was given a copy of the Bible and I started reading and I found Jesus in prison. And he said, had I not gone to prison, I would have never done that. And so, like you famously say, Daniel, God meets us where we are. And he met that man where he was. And some people need to go to heaven from prison. Yeah. All right. The last part of the lesson is that if you look under number eight, so you have the references there, Psalm 5, 30, 49, 59, 92, 119. Why is it that according to the Bible, the joy comes in the morning? So what is this metaphor supposed to teach us? What does it mean, joy comes in the morning? It certainly doesn't mean there is no joy in the evening. It's a metaphor. The other metaphor that the Bible uses is on the third day. Uh, these three-day stories, starting from Abraham. And, and on the third day, first day, there is a trouble. Third day, there is a resolution. And between that is the second day. How do you know that something is a three-day story? Weeping comes in the evening, but joy comes in the morning. Sherry. I was just thinking it's something like light at the end of the tunnel. That's right. As we say, light at the end of the tunnel. Or Iris put in the chat, when the darkness of the night has disappeared. Michael? Easter occurred on a morning, Sunday morning. Yes, on and the third that, day. And that song by Cat Stevens, Morning Has Broken. Yeah. It touches your heart. Yeah. So I think that idea of a morning, a new day, resonates with everyone. Yes, so waiting is the expression of hope and is the hardest work of hope. And it teaches us that something happens overnight. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. Now We want the outcome, but we don't want the process. Anything else you wanted to say about the metaphor that joy comes in the morning? Yes, Rita? This is something about a change in you just picking up psalms 5 verse 3 in the morning O lord you hear my voice in the morning i lay my requests before you and you wait in expectation so it's about god's always there waiting but i haven't been ready to go to him and what a transformation for me when i recognize that he's there this is the start of a new life. Yes, and as we said, God is waiting in spite of the infinite power and knowledge. God has to wait as well. He has the capacity to make it happen, yet he doesn't. Because as we say in English, justice must not only be done, it must be seen that it's done. And so if God forces the story prematurely, he's not going to win because he must be seen as righteous and just and winning. John Pauline. Yeah, there's a philosophical school that questions the value of the biblical view of heaven by basically saying joy in the fullest sense requires suffering, requires recovery from something that is bad. So the question is, could you have an eternity without suffering and that would still be meaningful? I'm not saying I buy that philosophy, but it's an intriguing question, and in this context, it essentially means that after the time of suffering, the joy is enhanced, that the contrast between the joy and the suffering makes the joy even greater than it would otherwise be. So joy in the morning then makes sense in the light of the night being 
a metaphor for the time of suffering. Yeah. Thank you. Of course, part of the thing is that often we don't know what's going on. We don't know the details. As we mentioned, the lesson concentrates on Psalms, but remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees send a delegation to John the Baptist and say, who are you? Tell us. Are you the Messiah? No. Okay. Are you then Elijah, who is supposed to come? No. Are you the prophet from Deuteronomy 18? No. So who are you? I am the voice. So then who is the Messiah? He's the one who is standing among you, but I don't have much more to say. I don't know who he is. God will show me when he's here. And this fact that we are hazy on detail makes the waiting difficult. But there is still a Messiah in your midst. There is still joy in the morning. There is still something better coming. And that's the important part of the biblical perspective. And in a poetic way, Psalms, as part of the canon, help us to bring that perspective that, yes, we say at the end of Revelation, when it says that, behold, I am coming soon. And we say, okay, how soon is soon? The response is, come, Lord Jesus, we are going to wait in patience until it happens. Michael? F. Scott Fitzgerald one time said, in the long, cold night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. Things look terrible at 3 a.m. They just do. I don't care what problem you're dealing with. And they seem to uh, lighten much greatly when the sun rises. And I think that's just human nature. And I was told one time, if you're anguishing about something or you just can't sleep in the middle of the night, why don't you talk to God? He's up already anyway. And that's the message. The one who does not sleep, he's the one who guards over Israel. Yes. Dan? I think maybe it's partially a function of old age, but it seems like things are much clearer in the morning for me. I get up, I have my devotion, and it seems like I have more perspective, I have more energy. Everything just is more clear, and as the day goes along, I seem to lose energy. Everything sort of winds sort of down so that I look forward especially to the mornings because those are the best part of the day as far as I'm concerned. I don't know whether it's related to the morning devotional time or whether it's just a function of aging. But whatever it is, that verse really resonates with me. Yes, and Dave and Terry mentioned also in the chat that when you process things at night, they always seem worse than they are in reality. The Politburo of the Soviet Union was famous for making decisions at three o'clock in the morning, and a number of them looked accordingly. Yes, probably they met some other day. There was a German division president, I don't know, Irish younger generation, if you remember Marius Friedlin, who used to say, any committee after 8 p.m., the devil is chairing. So he was strictly against we are not going to make any decision after 8 p.m. <laughs> and uh, sometimes looking at the history of the Soviet Union, you, you can understand that some of those decisions were done at 3 a.m. Iris? Well, talking about the night, I think in recent years, there's much more research coming out about sleep. And really, I think in the chat, it was alluded to this, but the whole restorative power of sleep sorting things out in our brain on a, a neurological level. So there is something very therapeutic also happening during the night. I mean, we have that aspect of the dark night of the soul, but also, yes, because of what is happening physiologically while we sleep is because of that being so therapeutic. Our thinking is often enhanced in the morning. We can see things in a new light. And yeah, so there's hope. <laughs> yes, and I think many of us can testify to the fact that something that seems a complex problem to you at night, you wake up in the morning and you see a new perspective on it. Just because the brain was either rested or had time to defragment during the night or whatever. But you get a different perspective. All right, that's the end of the 13 weeks of study, and you can understand why Dragana Santrach chose this topic as the last one. But we don't want to finish the quarter without saying, what are the major lessons you have learned as a result of 13 weeks of studying the Book of Psalms? 
We did not have Psalms for a long, long period of time. I remember some decades of Sabbath school, but we did not have Psalms as a special quarter in recent history. Anything that stuck with you over the last 13 weeks or 13 lessons? John? Yeah, the big surprise for me was how difficult it was. I don't know if it was simply the fact that each psalm was sort of its own topic. So you couldn't take a verse-by-verse approach or chapter-by-chapter because there wasn't a thread going between them. And even if you grouped songs on the same topic, they were still quite different. And I was really looking forward to it, and I found it more challenging than I expected. And then you have to ask yourself, this is the way God intended it, putting into the scripture this way. So asking myself the question, what is the purpose of the challenge here? Or is it just better with the Psalms just sort of go a verse at a time or a chapter at a time and just leave it, trying to take the book as a whole, I found very challenging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Karen? I think for me, there's something about the authenticity of just expressing your relationship with God in the moment in relation to all kinds of aspects of human life and experience and just being honest before God about it. And oftentimes, even when something starts off a bit rocky, David manages to find some praise at the end and make sense of it and bring it to something more joyful. And there's just so much complexity and diversity of expression there. And that's something that we can have perhaps more of. Often we worship in a sort of quite a narrow lane of worship, whatever you'd like to call it. It's a bit late for me now. But there's a broad perspective of things which we can bring to worship and share and explore and experience God in. And I think that the Psalms encourages us to do that authentically. That's a very important aspect that we tend to use the Psalms of orientation. You know, God is great. God is wonderful. He's the rock. He's the refuge. To him, I run away from all the troubles, and he's wonderful. With him, there is nothing we cannot overcome. We tend to use that, but the sounds of disorientation, the laments, are as legitimate aspect of worship as those sounds of orientation. And yes, the sounds of reorientation that, yes, I was puzzled by this. I don't like this God. Remember the complaints. But the end of the psalm, but it's still good for me to draw closer to God. So there is in many of them a reorientation at the end. And that the joy comes in the morning and with different perspective, you can see things differently, not exactly as they seem from this point of view. So take a long view of things. That's a very important aspect of this quarter. As I mentioned before, as a self-perceived remnant, we have a tendency to triumphalism. And we don't see the corporate repentance and lament as an important aspect of corporate worship. That we should have a day of mourning when we confess all the things and decisions that we did as a local church, as a conference, as a union, as a world church that hurt and harmed people in our midst. And that to quote Paul, that you know, people are blaspheming God's name because of what you are doing. And people don't want to be, have anything to do with God or the church because how they have been hurt and damaged in the process. And that's also an important aspect. Elisa? I think one of the most appealing things about the Psalms is voice. That is that quality of personal voice that you can hear, at least I can, in many of the Psalms, hear that individual writer or singer saying those things. And I don't think that all of the Bible is like that. So we can resonate more, I think, with some piece of writing that has voice in it. Thank you. David? I think for me, what this quarter has shown me is that God respects our feelings and our observations, even when our observations are initially wrong or skewed, off base, whatever. He respects that we have those and I think he's honored when we can come to him with those and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing now. And as we process it in our conversation with God, like David did, where he had the moments of lamentation and everything is going against me. And as he talked to God, talking through it, he comes to the end and he says, but I know you're with me, God. I know that you care for me. I know that you're taking care of me. And I am grateful for the fact that you are with me. Yeah, I don't see it, but I know the reality out there is different. 
And this idea, you know, don't call me Noemi, call me Mara, that uh, God can deal with emotions which are difficult for us to deal with because the Almighty dealt bitterly with me. God is not threatened. We mentioned it before that hopefully if mom had enough sleep and is in a good place of her hormonal cycle and the eruptions of the sun are within the norm, she can take the fact that little daughter says, I hate you, you are such a lousy mother, because she can bring some perspective to it. Now, if you're insecure, if you didn't sleep, if the hormones are out of whack and too many eruptions on the sun, you can't talk to me like this. I am your mother. You know, that's the end. I am a terrible mother and you should not publicize it to the whole supermarket. But if you are assured, you can handle that well. And God can handle our outbursts of emotions that we can't. And the book of Psalm is an inspired, inspired collection to teach you that, that he's bigger than our ups and downs and outbursts of emotions. He can handle it. Don't worry. He's secure enough. He's a good parent. And because our parents did not have perfect parents, our parenting skills leave a lot to be desired. And don't project everything from the bad parenting we all have received unto God, because Psalms show you that he's bigger than that. Thank you. That's amazing. Rita? I think in Christendom, there is a tendency, isn't there, to go through the Psalms and pick out verses or bits of verses that we think are promises from God. And what I've learned is that actually we mustn't look at them like that. This is, and as John Pauline said, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to study the Psalms because they are all different. They're not in any chronological order. They come from different periods in Israel's history. They're not necessarily related to each other. When you read, there are, are some that do seem to be sequential. But I think the wonderful thing is, in having looked at the ones that we have looked at, is that we can express our feelings about what we are seeing is reality when actually if we were to stop and engage our reason that isn't the reality and some of those psalms show that the author has expressed his feelings and had a rant or even poured out praise and at the end of it his reason has been engaged and realized that actually situation wasn't as black and white as he was seeing it at the time. And that's worship too. The fact that we can go to God, that we are free to go to God with our shouting and our ranting and our blaming. And he'll sit there with his arms open and say, that's right, come and sit on my knee and tell me all this. And then I'll put my arms around you and you'll see you're not quite right, that you can rely on me. Is that all you have to say? Good. <laughs> yeah. Julie. This is just an observation, but I think, and I could be wrong, but I think during this time of studying Psalms, I've heard more personal stories. And I think we tend to be, as Adventists in general, I think we tend to be very cognitive about our study. And I don't think that's all bad. I think we need to use our brains. But I think Psalms does something to each one of us. And we relate to it. And we have this personal thing that comes out. And we share. And we all need each other's stories as part of our Christian walk. And these stories, I think, have been extremely helpful, encouraging. Psalms bring something out in us that touches that part of our heart and our minds it shares with others. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And Michael? The Psalms, I see, find significant contrasts, like the 22nd and the 23rd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm is, you know, I've felt that way at times. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forgotten about me? I'm trying to be a nice guy. Why do these onslaughts happen to me? And then the joy of the 23rd Psalm, you know, just overflowing with gifts that I don't deserve, but I still receive them. These are pure human emotion reactions to life and life circumstances. Thank you. Don't forget the fact that the music was not inspired, only the words. This is the hymnal. The largest book of the Bible is the hymnal. Where is the music? We don't have it. The music needs to be supplied by every generation. Okay. 
Remember how we put the Psalms in the context? They have meaning for that original context. And so the word of the psalmist to God does not magically become the word of God to me in different time and different place. And on the contrary, a plain reading of that can do more damage than more harm than good to our life of faith. And it's not because there's something wrong with the Psalms, it's something wrong with our approach to that. And then the storyline when the Psalmist and the Israelites are praying, Lord, we don't like this. Our enemies are on the top. We are at the bottom. Do something about it. We are desperate for the day when you will come and we finally will be on the top and enemies will be crushed. Jesus comes and says, actually, being at the bottom, that's where you find the entrance to the kingdom of God. Yes, they are oppressors, but God sends his reign on the bad ones and the good ones. He sends his son to shine on everybody. My mission is not to overthrow the Roman oppressors the way you want it. My mission is to heal the world. And I'm going to accomplish that in a very different way than you imagined. Yet their prayers are what they are, the reflection of the philosophy of the day, of reading the prophecies the way they read. And God can work with their imperfect understanding and bring something greater. Even those who reject me are still loud. I'm still going to bless them. Long term, they will not benefit from that. But if you behave like God behaves, those who want to be like God will be truly children of God and will do to others what God does. Love everybody, share blessings with everybody, and be a different type of community so that people are blessed. And in that sense, the book of Psalms is incredibly relevant. I remember as a child, Friday night, reading the psalm that was one of the most boring thing, and I would almost pray, oh, we really need to read the psalms. But I got a new appreciation of the cultural relevance that, yeah, this is what people felt, this is what it meant for them, and it's an invitation for us to move on and do in our times what they did in their own time with their honest, brutally honest feelings and expressing how they experience it. And God took it, used it to bless so many people meanwhile, and ultimately to bring a different solution that is part of the story of God that will bring the final resolution of problem of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the fact that when we don't understand things, when we are called to exercise patience, that we can still know that we are in good hands and there is ultimate reality in your loving, caring heart, that you understand things which are confusing to us in the tension that we live between good and evil and how things have worked out in our lives, in the world and environment that we are part of, and that when all is said and done, ultimately you will bring it to a good resolution. We are looking forward to the joy in the morning, in our personal lives, in our corporate lives, and in the resolution of the second coming which you promised to bring and resolve things which are still confusing and beyond our comprehension this side of eternity. And thank you that we can trust you regardless how rocky and bumpy is the road that we experience every day. We're thankful that we serve a God like that and help us to create an environment where people get a different perspective of who you are that can bring hope and acceptance to hopeless lives that are still way too many in this world. Make us tools in your hands, also as a result of the fact that we spent 13 weeks looking at these experiences of faith from people in the past. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.